Hey, listen, we're sitting in a moment of unbelievable change, particularly for for all media, digital media in particular. Hey, stop it. You're tapping over top of my monologue. I can't remember what it's going to say now, Alex. <laughs> Sorry. I'm excited it's our second guest since your son. It's true. <laughs> yeah. And we got that very thoughtful note from Cynthia about Seb, so I hope that we get that about Brian. So the pressure's on Brian with a Y. talk a lot about the future of digital being kind of apocalyptic. There's lots of new models that will emerge. Professional media will play a role. There's lots of things to work through and ideas. Listen, Brian famously likes to kind of make whatever his company's doing his kind of current thing, the scripture. And, you know, it'll be interesting to get his point of view and, you know, the audience can figure out where there's some nuggets in it. Troy, you were excited about bringing Brian on. I've read up. I'm not super qualified. You know, I did say I liked Gawker a week before it was announced that it shut down. So I have no idea. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> you like the design, right? I did like the design. I like that big ass logo at the top. That was very cool. Yeah, their templates on all their sites are pretty good. Yeah. Alex, you should take a look. The yeah. bustle sites are good. The bustle sites are good. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know how much value I'm going to add there. Let me just get into this a little bit, though, before Brian comes on. For those who I, we always talk in shorthand and like as if everyone knows everyone, but it's not necessarily the truth. Brian Goldberg was a co-founder of Bleacher Report, and I think Bleacher was really interesting because it was among the first to really understand the distribution scene that was search, and they kept costs super low, and they got a lot of flack for doing that. But they also outflanked ESPN and SI, SI by being extremely SEO driven. And they ended up selling to Turner for $200 million in 2012. That was a massive wind for digital media at the time. And then Brian, like the next year, I believe, went founded Bustle. Hmm. And that was a bet to replicate basically the Bleacher Playbook. This is me, my vision of it. But for women, big category, big push. Now, Troy, you were a competitor of Brian's at mm -hmm. the time, yeah, correct? For sure. I can remember you telling me that like your skepticism when they launched, he put himself out, out front and he didn't have like an editor. And you were like, he's the editor then. <laughs> yeah, that was a big joke then. No, Brian thought that the Bleacher, to your point, the Bleacher playbook could be applied to a new vertical. And he thought that the different interests of the kind of female audience could be rolled out kind of slice by slice into a single site that was fast and search oriented and that he could win a distribution battle and from there the media company would take shape. Mm -hmm. Now you were coming at this, this is why I think it's really interesting because you were coming at this from the opposite direction. Like when I was covering agencies, I remember this was basically a race. It was the digital agencies like Organic and Razor, mm -hmm. Vision, the Red. They were trying to use their digital expertise to move up the chain to where the the brand dollars were. And at the time, the the big ad agencies were trying to add like the digital specialists, and it was For like sure. who's going to win? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. I think something similar was going on really in publishing. Hearst had a tremendous amount of advantages of brands that had decades, sometimes many decades of of history behind them. But I think particularly before you got there, they kind of sucked at digital. That's me saying it. 
That's my evaluation. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of existential, actually, because even though I would say what Brian will advocate for today is very much like the magazine model of old, where you have the packaging power of the cover and everything that goes along with being associated with a famous brand, where you're focused on quality over stuff that drives distribution, and that you use that brand to bring people together as a means of creating industry, sort of critical mass in any vertical that you're in, bringing people together, activations or events, business or whatever. That was what magazine brands did, and that's what Brian Brian's into. And the problem at the time was that the revenue trajectory post, say, 2010 in magazines was down anywhere between 5 and 25% a year. Because big companies like L'Oreal that made like major, major commitments to at a corporate level to companies like Hearst and Condé and others and Meredith were no longer supporting the print medium like they were. So you had deteriorating P&L, you had a cost base that was very, very high, and you had to find a way to make money in digital. And the, the sort of playbook du jour in digital was very much what Brian was doing at Bleacher, which is fast and furious and get me lots of eyeballs and we'll sell it however we can. Who won? Nobody. <laughs> this is media. Nobody wins. Everybody loses. <laughs> Well, the thing is, the question I want to ask is, how do they make money? I don't see any tabula links at the bottom of that article. That's what I want to know. Well, let's ask Brian that. Yeah, we can ask Brian. No, I think to me it's like really fascinating, particularly because you lived through all this. I mean, I was, you know, those Waldorf and who's it? Who's the other one? The two Muppets up in the uh, balcony. Waldorf and yeah, yeah. I'll find out. I was, I was the one on the left. I mean, niche is winning right now, right? Isn't that your thesis? I, I mean, it's my thesis, but it's kind of like, I don't think it's a bad thesis. No, I never said that. I just think that you, you asked who won. I don't think anyone won. Okay, so like, it was a battle of, Alex is positioning this as a battle of the Bryans, but it was like a battle of like, Conde and Hearst versus Bustle and everyone lost. Listen, Conde had a few prestige brands that have, to me, fared pretty well through the transition. Clearly, the subscription-led brand like The New Yorker has more insulation and is doing, I think, doing well. The magazine brands that have major kind of tentpole cultural assets like Met Ball you know, and Vanity Fair, Oscars Party and stuff like that, I think are in a better position than a publication like, say, Cosmo that in its day was extraordinarily successful and profitable on account of having re- three really strong revenue lines kind of mass beauty subscription and newsstand, that one has suffered the most. Yeah. That was the one, by the way, that Bustle was most sort of squarely aimed at. Yeah. And and Bustle's now a decade old. And I had Jason Wagenheim, Brian's CRO, on uh, my other podcast recently. And I was just struck by, and we talked about it a little bit a couple previous episodes here, but just how what he was talking about, which is putting on parties at Art Basel and stuff like that was so different than what I've talked with Brian many times over the years. I don't do this as like a gotcha thing. Like, let me call up, which I'm, I have them here, so I'm willing to do that. But if you have why to. did you say this? <laughs> you know that like, you know, the meet the press thing? Like, they're like, back in like, you know, something like the politician, you said this about Facebook. I can do that, but it's not that fun. Listen, let's, let's get Brian on and let him speak for himself. Anything goes, Brian. The shape of what to come right, is very much being written right now. There's promising startups like Puck. By the way, 
John Kelly, the way that John Kelly can kind of recount New York Times media history is unsurpassed. That guy is amazing. I don't know if you listened to his last podcast, but he, he is such a good kind of media historian. Back to Brian and Bustle. Brian reached out after the last episode and he said, okay, I'll come on your stupid podcast. And I think that he was start. a little bit tweaked by something that was said. I think it was Alex. Alex, you, you like thought you were going to come here and like you know fade into the background, but you might get your face ripped off. Okay. All right, so let's okay. bring him on. So I just want to make sure if any face gets ripped off, it's Alex's face. Listen, Brian. <laughs> Brian is a restless thinker. <laughs> restless thinker. He's yeah. a public intellectual. Let's yeah. bring him on. He's got a lot to say, and he's proud of what he's built. So let's hear what he's where, what what does he got to say about where we're going and what lessons can we learn from it. Fuck, you're more handsome in real life than I remembered. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Was that on the record? Yeah, we've already started. Yeah, I just managed to record that one. Yeah, it looks like you're reclining on a couch. I like it. Are you like in a chaise lounge? Sit up straight, please. You know, there's this is sort of a therapy session. I thought. I thought. I thought you guys are a collective (laughs) Sigmund Freud, and I'm. Tell me. And I'm the patient, just confessing to you. That works. We could start there. Hey, Brian, where where are you right now? I am in Miami, Florida. Yeah. Where Where are you in Miami? It's a very cool hotel. So if you know it, I'll be impressed. Uh, <laughs> be impressed. Yeah, I know. <laughs> he's already he's already throwing punches. So the implication is you won't see Brian Morrissey there doing a, a webinar. Look, I, I I'm, I'm I would do a webinar. I, I'm not going to throw punches at Brian. In fact, I'm going to I'm going to compliment. Oh my I'm God, just, we're only like two minutes in. I'm going to begin the podcast by by saying something nice, which is I don't do a lot of podcasts. This is probably the first one I've done in two or three years, maybe longer. I used to do them occasionally. Uh, and when I did, it was with Brian Morrissey when he was running the Digiday podcast, which used to be a really big deal and was sort of the it podcast for much of the last decade. And I was always in competition with this other executive to see who could be on it the most times. And that executive... Neil Vogel. Well, he I was, yes, maybe him. I was going to say Troy Young, the esteemed president oh, of, Troy, of yeah. Hearst no, Magazines at the time. Yeah. Hey, let's get started, Brian, because sure. we're all interested to to hear your thoughts and get into... A, a meaty conversation, <laughs> adversarial conversation sure. with Brian. So the conventional narrative is, is I think, where we should start, which is kind of digital media was hot and now it's in shambles. And that there were companies that were great in the first wave and they're much worse off now. And you seemingly have a new plan mm-hmm. and one that is putting bustle in what you would articulate as a very valuable new kind of competitive mm-hmm. position, right? And I would characterize that as a shift from scale to scarcity. Mm-hmm. And I think we should start with your sort of your assessment maybe of where we came from, mm-hmm. how you've observed the market mm-hmm. change fundamentally in terms of what readers want, what the distribution channels look like, and what advertisers want and what you're building. Sure. So that's the context I think we could start with. Sure, sure. And I'm, look, I'm happy to jump into my shtick, but I'll, I'll begin by addressing your questions and I'll begin by immediately rejecting two things you just said. So the first thing I'll reject is the idea that we should have the same plan in 2023 that we had in 2016. And I would argue I that... I don't think I said that. Well, I, think, I don't think I suggested that. All right. Well, you, you say we have... Welcome to my world, Troy. You, <laughs> you're saying we seem to have a new plan. Yes, we, we have new plans every year as the world changes. So as the world changes, our plans change a bunch. And That's fine. And like I said, I haven't been on a podcast in years, so the world's very different. What I will reject also is the idea that things are better or things are worse now than they were in 2016 or 2017 when everybody was talking about us and everyone wanted to fund us. It is true that six, seven years ago, 
when BuzzFeed and Vice were all the talk of the industry that people wanted to fund us and VCs were throwing cash at, at these companies. It's also true that Digiday and others were talking about us like the cool kids. And, and this was sort of the, the fascinating world. But I don't think that necessarily means things were better. And I don't think that means things were healthy. And I would argue that a lot of the pain and fallout that took place in this decade and that sort of brought down companies like Vice and BuzzFeed was exactly that, the expectations, the overfunding, and all the cash that sort of prevented them from having to think about how do we become real businesses that can generate profits. So the perception was certainly better six or seven years ago, but does that mean the reality was really that great back then? We'll see. We'll see. But I look at my company in particular, and I'm very happy with where we are. There is no doubt 2023 is a very tough year for advertising. It's a probably a, a once per decade low year for advertising. But overall, strategically, I'm happy with where things are. And before I jump into the industry, I'll talk about my company real quick. We just had our 10th birthday about a month ago. And I sent a letter to my company. And what I said in so many words is, it's a bummer that our 10th birthday is falling on a really hard year, a, a terribly difficult year for the industry, and, and frankly, a tough year for us because of the advertising woes. At the same time, by hitting a 10-year milestone, we can look at the whole decade and we can look at things in their totality. And we can say, well, this year is tough, but if you look at where we are now versus where people thought we'd be a decade ago, it's unbelievable how far we've come. So that's kind of one way to frame it. Let me pause real quick. I'm hearing beeping. Is that, are you guys hearing that? No. Okay. No. All right. So you can cut that part. Okay. And now he's not just a guest, he's the editor. Sorry. <laughs> well, I'm, I he's a five-tool player. I want, I, want this, I want this podcast to sound good. All right. So going back to podcast. So when you look at the totality of 10 years for us or anyone else, I think we've come a long way. But the world has changed a lot in the last 10 years. And I think the biggest way in which it's changed is just how much content's being produced. In the year 2023 versus the year 2019, there's probably a thousand times more content being produced now versus, versus four or five years ago. And if you look at 2023 versus 2013, when our company launched, it's 10,000 times, 100,000 times more content. It is, it is absolutely seismic. And so in a world where the barriers to create content have just come down completely, you do have to ask yourself, why do we exist? How can we be valuable? And is there a reason we need to exist? And I think every media company faces this problem. UGC on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube is, is taking a huge bite from every professional content creator, which includes Disney and includes Netflix. Disney and Netflix absolutely have a TikTok problem right now. There's a reason why Disney just announced they're pushing so hard into theme parks and cruises. It's because they have a TikTok problem and an Instagram problem. And it's a lot harder to create a world-class theme park than it is to create short videos. So that's the problem everyone's facing. That's the reality. And everyone just has to navigate that. And we're navigating that and others are navigating it poorly, in my opinion. And if people are going to ask why are BuzzFeed and Vice in such bad shape, I would argue that they're sort of stuck in the middle. And we've seen this problem in the retail industry, which is probably 10 or 20 years ahead of where media is in terms of the manner in which clothing became much easier and cheaper to produce. We've seen that luxury producers like Gucci and Louis Vuitton have thrived. We've seen that Zara and Shein and TJ Maxx are kicking ass. But Nordstrom and all the clothes you'll find in Nordstrom are in a really bad spot. And, and that's kind of where BuzzFeed and, and Vice are, kind of stuck in the middle. So we've been aggressively working on that for years. We've pushed into the high end. We're reaching a new consumer. We're no longer obsessed with trying to reach 100 million consumers or 50 million. We'd rather reach the correct 30 million and have focus and do sort of niche at scale. And, that, and that, that's an effort that's been underway for since 2016 or 2017. We, we, we took 
a completely different path than the BuzzFeeds and the Vices and the Refinery29s and the Business Insiders. You know, in 2016 or 2017, there was a fork in the road where they aspired to build Vice and BuzzFeed into these super brands. They really thought in 2016 or 2017 that BuzzFeed or Vice or Refinery29 could be these super brands that reach 100 million, 200 million people that are worth five or $10 billion one day. BuzzFeed turned down a billion dollars from Disney, presumably because they thought they could be the next Disney. At that time, our company took a totally different route. I said, I don't want any of my properties to reach 50 or 100 million people. I want to own several properties. I want them to focus on a specific vertical or a specific consumer. And I'd rather have 10 properties that reach three or 4 million people than one property that's reaching 100 million people. And that was, and that was a very good bet. That was basically what made our company succeed and where others have failed. Can I just jump in? When, when did you decide that that, because I mean, we talked a lot yeah. over the years, right? And I can remember the early, I guess it would be 2013 to 2017. Mm-hmm. I was going to, I was joking before this that I was going to do like the meet the press thing mm-hmm. and bring up like a quote, you know, <laughs> of you and be like, you said this in 2015. I would have no problem with that. And the re- <laughs> oh, I have them right here. Okay. okay. So <laughs> I'm glad that you, you invited it because I'm interested in when you, you sort of changed. Because in 2015, you actually wrote for Digiday. Facebook has been remarkably transparent when communicating these changes to publishers. It has repeatedly reiterated their commitment to the key role publishers play in the Facebook ecosystem. And it recognizes it would be untenable to throw a giant wrench in the system right before they threw a giant wrench in the system. <laughs> Uh, strikes me that Facebook was his primary distribution mechanism at the time. I guess what what oh, do you to, to be very clear, like, I'm going to defend myself here. Do you think Facebook okay, do you ahead. think Facebook's a better product now or a more successful product now than it was in 2015? Because I would argue it's not. I think Facebook is dead. It's a zombie. I, Alex always calls things dead and I'm like they're not really dead, but I'm like Facebook is in essence dead. My wife posted a photo of us on Facebook and the only people who liked it were over 70. Now I don't know, maybe people just don't like I'm it, but sure I think that's somebody at something. Facebook right now is is freaking out and is going to call us telling them that Facebook is or big blue as they like this to call it. That's how we're going to get Zuckerberg on ever. the podcast. Facebook's not dead. That's ridiculous. And what you're saying is the insane. They're not dead, but they're not dead, but they're posting. No, I'm saying Facebook as an app is in essence dead. It's irrelevant to anyone who is is under 60. I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, maybe some geographies. De- defending me when I was when I was younger in 2015, they did make a mistake by killing themselves as a content distribution network. I, I, I used it a lot at that time to read, to discover content to read. That's no longer a primary use case of Facebook, and I haven't been on the app in five or six years. I think I deleted my account. I wouldn't even know. So, so they, did, they did not do <laughs> what I said, and I think that was to their detriment. So I will leave it at that. You know what, Brian? Just for one second, Wait, I think... Brian? We need to do... We need to- Brian with an eye. Facebook is a Gen X medium still to this day. What? Much like cable television is a medium for the generation that came before them. Wait, wait, wait. Facebook I go on, is a Gen X 100% medium? it is. 100%. There are people Troy, in you're my... you're a young ex- boomer. Sorry. I'm not a young boomer, dude. I'm squarely Gen X. And when I go on there, I it it's littered with updates and photos from yeah. people in my cohort. And it's... No, it's, thanks. Find me on yes, LinkedIn. I'm, I'm, I'm logging back I'm not, to the, Facebook for the first time in eight years, and I'll tell you where so, it's at. But, right, let, let me get back to this with Brian done. with a Y. <laughs> yeah. Brian. Okay, let me get back to this with Brian with a Y. When did you say, we got to change this playbook? Because I, I watch a lot of NFL, mm-hmm. and there are coaches. There were, I was watching the game last night, the Eagles game, 
And they they could not run the ball on the Eagles, and they kept running it. They just kept running it. And Troy Aikman was like, you got to hand it to them. They're really sticking with the run. I'm like, no, actually, you don't, Troy, because it's not working. Mm -hmm. Do something different. What did you see that made you change the playbook? Yeah, so... What specifically? So a couple of things. So first of all, I asked a fairly... What I, to me was an obvious question, which is, if Condé Nast and Hearst were really good businesses in the 1990s and, and even the first decade of the 2000s, what was broken about them and what was not broken about them? And I felt the thing that was not broken about them what was the core value proposition of reaching targeted, segmented audiences across dozens of publications. The core problem was a format problem. The other problem was that they had too many publications and some that didn't fit print very well. But it was never an issue that they had a lot of titles that were aimed at specific audiences. I always thought that was something that was right about the incumbents that didn't need to change. So that was the first thing. The second thing pertained to Bleacher Report. Just for context, that, that's, a, that's a media company I started back in 2007, and, and we sold to Turner in, in 2012. And I felt then, as I feel now, it was really good media property, a really big media property that reached a very valuable audience. And at that time, we were three or four years removed from me selling it to Turner. And what I kept hearing from my colleagues who were still there was, gee, it, was, it, it wasn't terribly hard to grow this thing to 50 million of revenue, even 100 million of revenue, but I don't know how this single property gets to two or 300 million of revenue, that it felt like there was something of a natural ceiling. And I, and I took that to heart. I took, I took that as a very important data point. And I felt that the path to two or 300 million of revenue probably looked more like five times 50 or eight times 30. Hey, hey, it, hey Brian. Yeah. Brian with a Y. So there was a time, I guess it would have been 17 or so, and you were at the time, and I really admired it, were boldly predicting the ascension of Bustle to certainly take on Refinery29, if not the incumbents like the ones at Hearst or, or Condé. And there was a point where Refinery had a huge amount of momentum, had good management, and had a, a, a great brand and a really good sales organization. What do you think changed in terms of how they oriented that company that, that ultimately led to the need to sell it to Vice that you kind of observed at the time and said, we got to do something different. Yeah, so you're right on a couple of things. They had a massive lead over us. I mean, it, it's hard to understate how many years and how many dollars their lead was over us. And I should, I should preface all this by saying I like the company and I always like the founders. So I, I, even when they were our big competitor, I, hesitate, I hesitated to attack them or, or disparage them because I, I generally thought they were good people, at least in the executive ranks. I'll give a moment in time that I think captures it. So around 2017 or 2016, I can't tell you the exact year, we decided we were going to launch a parenting site called Romper. It's, it still does quite well for us. And I did that because I didn't think parenting content should be on Bustle. I felt that even though a mother might read Bustle, she's in a very different state of mind when she's seeking parenting content versus reading about fashion content or beauty content or celebrity content. And I wanted to start separating our properties into niches. At that same time, Refinery launched Refinery29 Moms and felt that the Refinery29 brand was so good that it should extend into parenting and ultimately other categories. Because like I said, they and Vice and BuzzFeed wanted to build these super brands that, that could do billions in revenue one day. That was a huge point of distinction. The second point of distinction, and my comms people are going to probably yell at me for bringing this up because it's, it's a bit of, a, of still a, a hot issue, was political activism and social change. And this fundamental question of whether media publications, capitalist for-profit media publications, should also be, you know, forums for 
political chatter, social justice, uh, social change, and, and whether the writers were primarily focused on building an audience for lifestyle content or primarily focused on social activism and social justice. And that really, you know, we don't like to talk about that because everyone's so afraid to talk about it, but I really do think that caused some issues in our industry too, especially at Vice, especially at Refinery, somewhat at BuzzFeed. I, I think Jonah wasted many years and many tens of millions of dollars trying to make BuzzFeed News a thing because he was personally very committed to, to social change and political activism. So I think it was two things. It was our separation into niches, which was the right business model, but also my commitment as a CEO to say that as much as I respected that a lot of my writers and editors felt strongly about political issues and social activism, that ultimately we are a lifestyle network. We are aiming to build an audience around lifestyle categories. And that I do think most journalists have an obligation to separate their personal beliefs and, and their personal political priorities from what they're publishing every day on their websites. And, and others may disagree at with the me. Same time, at the same time, the whole industry was investing more and more of the content dollars in video. And you were very critical. You were outspoken about that. And Refinery had put a lot of, you know, this is a money losing business investing in documentaries, right? Expensive documentaries that whose returns were highly speculative. Mm -hmm. You resisted that, and that probably was a good call at the time. Yeah, I think. Look, all three of those. You, I named two. You just named a third. Three things where everybody kind of went one way, and I went the other. I had complete conviction. All three of those bets were bad bets. I had complete conviction that building super brands was a bad bet when one could build niche brands. I had conviction that going deep into politics and social change was bad for business. And I had conviction that spending millions and millions and millions on video with no clear business model was also a bad bet. And I think those three in combination made a big difference. And those are probably the three I'd highlight as it pertains to Refinery29 versus us or BuzzFeed versus us, because I, I think you could apply it equally. Yeah. I think Refiner Refinery lost the plot when it started covering the first Ukraine invasion. Honestly, between 2014 and 2015, it doubled its editorial staff and was covering congressional races. It was covering, again, the war in Ukraine. And I remember reading, editing these stories and like, this makes no sense. Like, why is Refinery, why does the world need Refinery 29 or Mashable covering foreign affairs? It just doesn't make sense. It, there was no need. And I feel like these days now, you do, like you mentioned it, you have to ask the question every brand, every person, like, why do we exist? Yeah. Do we need to exist? Does the world need us? Yeah, let's, let's be the best at covering fashion. And, and, and I think there was a time where a lot of the, the journalists felt, what am I doing writing about fashion and beauty when the president is crazy and, wow. and That's the world's That's at the war? Stuff. Well, but that, it was starting before Trump and, and, it, and it's lasted after Trump. So it's not just a Donald Trump thing. But look, Donald Trump was, was a huge, it was a big, you know, he was a big deal. And it, was, and it forced all publishers to say, are we going to sort of go chase this? He was baiting. He was baiting newspapers. He was baiting magazines. There's no question. I mean, this thing with Graydon Carter was 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 just one example. He he was seeking the attention. So the question was, are you going to go let him win and go sort of chase him down and and make it Trump 24 seven? But it wasn't just Donald Trump. It was it was other things too. It predated Donald Trump. It's lasted since him. And and it takes a lot of discipline and focus to say we are a fashion publication and we are going to cover fashion. And in fact, there was a huge. Huge industry, you know, industry blow up. I want to say three or four years ago, when Deadspin, which is primarily a sports publication, had this huge thing of, "Are we going to stick to sports?" and and there was a lot of fallout from that. And how, you know, how dare they tell the writers of a sports publication to primarily focus on writing about sports in a, in a world that needs social change? And I think that may have taken place either at the end of the Trump presidency or after Trump. But it was it was 
those conversations were taking place. I'm not going to comment on that particular case or that particular publication, but that whole question of can, how can we stick to sports, that was a big deal in this industry. And, and it took out a lot of publishers. I would, yeah. I would push back on the dead spin thing because to me, it's all about like what your brand is about, yeah, right? That's fine. If all of a sudden, you know, dead spin always to me, like it was a mishmash. It was a weird brand. I'm talking about like it's past tense. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Maybe in their case, that's true. And, and I agree. They, they, they'd covered stuff besides sports. But mashable, mashable. Mashable to sure. me is like the part. It's like, I mean, come on. Like, why do we need like mashable doing national news? What is different about a point of view centered publication like Gawker <laughs> when you resuscitated it versus when it was thriving five years before? I mean, look. What it changed? I was wondering if you were going to bring up Gawker. I think the, the issue with our relaunch of Gawker is you kind of missed our window. I mean, I, that, that's kind of how I'd summarize it. It was, it was a brand the whole world was talking about in 2018 when we had, would have liked to have relaunched it. And then in, by 2021, it was sort of yesterday's news and, and hard to build an audience. And a lot of that audience, I think, had moved on. But also was a world in which was much harder for stories to go viral and to, to really carry. So look, the main difference is people are less inclined to type in www.gawker.com and go to a homepage. Same thing with, with New York Times or any other publication, CNN. That, that's one, one of many ways in which the world's changed between 2013 and 2023 is people used to get their content by literally typing in homepage.com and, and seeing whatever was there. And in that world, Gawker was great because they could put a clever mishmash of content on the homepage and people would read it because it was there. That world ceased to exist five years later and, and, and nothing of the sort exists today. I actually was a bit of a contrarian at the time when we, when we sought to relaunch Gawker, I really thought it was one of very, 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 very few publications that could still have a homepage audience. Uh, and, and, and it did get, to its credit, ten or 15,000 people a day to type in Gawker.com. And that's nothing to laugh at. I mean, most websites can't even muster that. But, but they did get that. And, and my hope is it would have been a much higher number, but that never came to pass. Right. Can I just jump in? Like, I remember talking to you in 2000, I think it was 2017. I wish I'm, everything runs together. Yeah. And I, I distinctly remember you were like, you're going to have to rename Digiday Brian Day. And I was like, I mean, come on, I'm important, but I'm part of a team. And, and then I was like, oh, wait, no, he's talking about Brian with a Y. And it was <laughs> basically because at that time, <laughs> I thought you were like giving me a big compliment, but it turns out you weren't. At the time, there was this idea that the, you were saying there's going to be a roll-up, basically, mm -hmm. and we're going to be doing the rolling up. And you see that basically you need to reduce operating costs, which I totally agreed with. And I, you said in... A podcast we ended up doing subsequent to that. There's a lot of back office fixed fixed costs, office space. You could be consolidating offices. You don't need to have your own lawyers yep. and and et cetera. And I think BuzzFeed in some ways did this and Vice, I guess, with a refinery. No, neither neither neither, neither of them really did it and neither of them did it well. So I, I reject that. And I and I actually resented it when Jonah went in the New York Times a few years later and was like, oh, I have a great idea. There should be a roll-up. And it's like, buddy, we've been doing this for years now. We've yeah. been doing it successfully and, and you're, you're probably too late to do it. And he was too late to do it. And, and when he did try to do it, he did not do it well. I forget exactly what I said. And, and I, I do not doubt I trolled you. Um, that's the only thing I can say for certain is I, I definitely probably threw a punch at you because I, I love to do that. <laughs> but what I will say is, is whatever that moment was, we have bought a lot of property since then. And I think a lot of the best deals we've done came after that moment. I mean, you know, W Magazine's been incredibly successful. Mylon Magazine's been incredibly successful. We've bought a number of parenting sites that do very well for us. So we bought Inverse, which is still our biggest traffic driver. So we, we've done so, a lot of hey, deals. Hey, Brian, yeah. Brian, what's the difference between, I got a lot of questions, mm -hmm. between a publication that can be resuscitated, mm -hmm. Nylon, mm -hmm. and one that can't, Gawker? 
Yeah, so so yeah. it's brand. Like we're living in a golden age of brands, and and maybe this helps us segue to what the future is about. So brands have never ma- mattered more in the world than they do today, on September whatever is twenty six, twenty twenty three, and and a year or two from now they'll matter even more because as the world becomes crazier, more fragmented, more distracted, brands necessarily become more useful because they save us time and they direct our energy and they offer us assurance. So even in the last ten years, we've seen a lot of brands that maybe weren't that famous or globally important become very important. And, and I'm a big watch guy, so I point to that. How many people today know what a Patek Philippe is or an Audemars Piguet who didn't know 10 years ago? Same thing for, for beverages and whiskeys and a lot of consumer products. The same is true for media. We live in a golden age of brands. And I think I, if I could do it all over again, I would have bought some of these other pristine brands that have existed for decades rather than going quite as, as deep in the digital native space. One that got away, for example, was Dwell Magazine a couple of years ago. I really wish I'd bought that. It's a fantastic brand. It's niche. I mean, it's a brand that really matters to people. We're in a golden age of brands. And I will tell you... So that means buying something like Dwell is a better call than Elite Daily. Oh, I love... First of all, I love Elite Daily. It's it's, it's a publication. (laughs) Lessons that we bought it, I still love it. And it totally fits what we what we attempted to do at the time which was reach a younger demo and it and it and so I'm not going to throw a lead daily under the bus but yes I would say that the strategy going forward is to focus on these brands that have existed for decades because it takes a long time to build a brand and I don't know you can really start new media brands that easily right now there are certainly influencers who become famous overnight now I don't know how long they stay famous or how long their brands are going to matter after a few years but I will tell you that nylon and W magazine, have done wonders for us since we bought them a few years ago. And at some point, I got to talk about our experiential strategy, our email strategy, our print strategy, because those are points of excitement for me. But it wouldn't be possible if these weren't brands everyone's heard of. I mean, these, these are, right. you, let's, be, right. let's be real here. For how famous these brands are, they should be making more money. And I'm intent on making sure they do. These are very famous brands recognized by a large percentage of this fa- fa- a brand, fa- Famous brands and small businesses, the age-old lament of the magazine business, right? It's always been... Fa- but also small bigger. audiences, right? I mean, yeah. Nylon gets like a million visitors. I'm just saying, mm-hmm. I'm not like, it's not a knock. I yeah. just mean that it's a totally different world in which you're excited about a property that gets a million visitors, whereas... Yeah, but, but, we but your, numbers, before, your numbers are wrong, Brian. Your numbers are completely wrong. When we throw an event at Coachella or Art Basel and thousands of people come and project and amplify that event to hundreds of millions of people, now we're reaching hundreds of millions of people with nylon. We're not doing it every day, that's true. But we're picking our moments and we're picking key moments. And in those key moments, nylon is what everyone's talking about. It might be three or four or five days a year, but in those three or four or five days a year, nylon is everywhere. Right, right. but you're not like obsessed about your comm score number. No, that's but, but that, that hasn't point. been the strategy for years. I, I'm not going to say I don't care at all, but it's just not, I mean, first of all, comm score primarily measures visits to right. .com websites. That's just one manifestation of our brands, and frankly, the one that's that may be the least exciting right now. So, so yeah, I mean, yet less people are going to dot coms than they did five years ago. But there's other manifestations of the brand. We're going to put nylon back in print. That may seem crazy, but we think it's a good idea, and the evidence it's a good idea is that print sales for W have gone up a lot this year. So we're seeing that to be a growing business. You might be surprised to hear that, but it's what the numbers are telling us. So wait, you're bringing back nylon magazine into print. It's a great product. Print magazines for fashion are a great product. Print magazines for sports and for news and for many other categories are a lousy product. But for fashion and any other highly aesthetic, non-timely category, like home decor, it's a good product. Troy, do you agree with that? It's not a good product 
in the way that it used to carry rate-based advertising in that it's not a scaled media product. It's more of a souvenir. And I think Brian's goal of creating scarce, like the creating moments and areas to sort of create importance for a celebrity or an event you're doing or something, something that is permanent like a, a print magazine is actually very valuable. It's very useful. You just don't print a lot of them. He's not going to print a million copies in no. nylon. He's going to print 10,000 copies in nylon. He's not going to obsess about selling subscriptions to nylon. He's going to distribute them at festivals and hotels and other important kind of physical yeah. environments. Yeah. It's just a different game. But uh, but I do reject the notion that a lot of people are lot of spending spending time with print media. You, you, you keep confusing the idea... I wouldn't say we're even confused here. We're, we're not. We're talking I'm not confusing. This is not a scale game, and it's never going to be a scale game again because TikTok has won the scale game. This is hey, hey Brian. Not right everybody people. is. Not everything is adversarial in life, Brian. <laughs> like in in fact, I was supporting I like you. Alex and I are enjoying this. Where, where I want to go next, Brian? Where you I finally said something started paying thought, attention, though. So. Sorry. I like it. Let's keep yeah, it going. It's great. You're like More the guy violence. in those bar More stool violence. videos that eats pudding while the interview's happening. I wish I brought the, some pudding. <laughs> when are we, we going okay. to talk about AI? We're going to talk about AI in a minute. But okay. When are we going to talk about how Alex took shots at the agency model that the other Brian, the one with the Y, has? Oh, oh here, you know, here we go with this myth that a service business is a bad business. It is. See, I told you you're going to get your face ripped off, Alex. As if we don't live in a service economy. Let, let, me, let me throw some numbers at you just to make this super simple. So in the quote-unquote heyday of BuzzFeed, in 20 Hey Brian, we, we, we would appreciate it if you could keep it simple. I'll, I'll keep the math simple for you guys. So in the heyday of BuzzFeed in whatever 2017, it, it was not difficult for them, or was, let's say it was difficult, but it wasn't uncommon for them to get 5 million organic visitors to BuzzFeed with viral stories, listicles, you know, what colors the dress, is it blue or is it green? And if you run the, if you really run the number on those 5 million daily organic visitors, that's 5 million people, call it four ad impressions per visit, at a $5 CPM, that's what gets you to $100,000 of revenue per day. If I'm doing my math right, you guys check my math. You, you, you're older and smarter and maybe have calculators there. <laughs> that equals about $36 million of revenue. And that's, that is revenue that a lot of people, a lot of writers had to get behind to, to make it happen. BuzzFeed was never about organic traffic from Facebook or Google or wherever. It was always going to be a service business. It was always about creating premium content for brands and buying distribution to it. That was what was going to get them well beyond 36 million and to be a company that could trade publicly. You know, if a company's going to reject a billion dollars and, and not sell, that they got to have their eyes on a billion dollars of revenue, that revenue was not going to come from 100 million organic visits a day to BuzzFeed at a $5 CPM. It was never going to happen. That was always a myth. That was always a myth that the math worked for organic traffic to drive a large-scale publicly traded business. So it was always going to be a service business. And I think a service business is a good business. I should point out, I've had one job in my life that wasn't running, building and running media companies. I worked at Deloitte Consulting from 2005 till 2007. It was a very typical financial consulting job. And that was a professional services business and a very, very good one that took decades, if not centuries to build. And I, and I think service can be a good business. So you pissed me off on your last episode. Could you not, were you not able to get the top tier job at like a McKinsey or Bain? I was not. I went to a, I went to Middlebury College, <laughs> which is a very good college, but not, but maybe evidently not, not BCG material. And, and Deloitte's pretty good. Deloitte's a very good consulting firm. I'll still defend it. I had, I had a good experience there and I learned a lot yeah. there. So, but, but it, one thing I learned is that services can be a good business if you are valuable and you're good at what you do. So I don't think 
having a large service component is a bad thing. I also think it's, it's a business that takes a long time to build and is defensible. Gotcha. Can we talk about platforms for a second, Brian? Sure. And then we'll get into AI, if you don't mind. Sure. So I'm interested in how your, your sort of worldview of media dependency on platforms has changed. Mm-hmm. And in particular, you said something the other day to me that I loved, that you, you said that Google considers commerce content or increasingly considers it an invasive species. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a good line. So let's talk about platforms yeah. and, and, and then move from platforms to, to, to the monetizable okay. content that is affiliate, that is affiliate. Yeah. Is it's, such a big part of the publisher toolkit these days. Yeah. Well, you, you can't look, look, you can't fight the platforms on that. I think we've all been in, in general agreement the last six or seven years since it became clear where the world was going. You, you know, in the finance world, they have that expression. You can't fight the fed. And and some of us are learning that the hard way the last couple of years. You can't fight the Fed, and you and you can't you can't fight Google and and Amazon and Facebook, uh, and so you're left with with two general paths. The first is to sort of play by the rules as best you can and hope that they don't screw you, and the other path is just to to push products that don't depend on them or depend on them as little as possible. And many, if not most, have chosen the path of trying to religiously adhere to Google and Amazon's rules. We try to do that, but we can't depend on that. And so I've pushed very hard into areas where they really can't control our fate. The live events being a great example, email newsletters being a great example, print magazines being a great example. I, I do have to say, some of those companies actually sponsor our events. Uh, some of the big platforms spend millions of dollars sponsoring our live events because they can't, on their own, get celebrities and influencers to come affiliate with their brands. So they, they affiliate with our brands and they partner with us. So it's all about figuring out where you go. Now, I will give a lot of credit to folks like Red Ventures and and dot dash and 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 folks like that they've done a really good job with the products they create they create content that is helpful and to the best of their abilities incorporates commerce links and i think google has been mostly cooperative and and but at the end of the end of the day do i think google likes it when publishers write all about products that then link out to amazon or or walmart or anyone else but primarily amazon no i don't think google likes it and I think Google will ultimately do what's good for Google. <laughs> I mean, come on, Google doesn't get a taste. I mean, the, the, that's the entire premise of the Google model was they're going to send Correct. you traffic, but this is not a charity. They were then going to get a taste through their ad tech system. All right, well, then let me throw that back at you, Brian, with an eye. Right? Do, do you think that Red Ventures and Dot Dash and all those guys are screwed? Do you think that long-term Google sort of kills their business because it, it has nothing to gain by not killing their business? I think it's a major, major, major risk, and it's the first question I ask Neil every single time and he dances around. There's a reason that Barry Diller is leading the charge is like he's awake yeah. on his yacht and is leading the charge against AI and getting paid mm-hmm. because this is an existential threat. Well, here's what I'll say about Neil Vogel and Meredith. And I preface this by saying I've known Neil for a long time and I, I truly admire him. If Google We did a thing together, if, the three of us one time. We did do that. Like a live podcast. If yeah. and we've gone down very different paths in those last four or five years. If Google is nice and doesn't get malicious, then Neil probably has a better business than me. If Google does get malicious and starts doing things I think Google might do and starts behaving overly tough in this area, then I probably am happy with my business. So it, it's just a big unknown. I think the content that Dot Ash and Reventures creates is pretty, pretty damn good content, and I think they should be proud of it, and I think it, it is often helpful, and I hope Google doesn't crush their business. I just don't trust Google on that front. I don't know if Google is even malicious because I think what they do is they hide behind these new consumer expectations and user behaviors, right? Which is why everybody loves Google. And right now, having three 
links to click to get to a product when I am going to ask my AI what is the best X, I think it, that will just feel terrible to to consumers everywhere. And if you're in that business where you're just a layer of abstraction between what I want to get and where I am today, you're screwed. You're going to get squeezed out and, and everybody's going to applaud Google for doing it, by the way. Nobody except in media is going to see Google as malicious here. They're just going to say, oh, great. Now I don't need to read the worst case of this is the bullshit on top of the recipe, or I don't need to see like the four products that don't make the cut. I just see the thing I want to see, and and everything is going to go through that grinder. Fine, and 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 that could be its own ten-hour conversation. But I think the nature of publishers is that nobody cares about publishers until we all go away. Then suddenly everyone goes, "Where are all the publishers? We miss we miss a world where we had professional journalism and professional <laughs> professionally created content." It turns out all these that, all these TikTok bozos yeah. aren't the same thing as journalists. But what, let me let me say this: like the TikTok bozos won, though, right? I mean, like I can remember over the years they're winning, and they're probably going to keep winning. It's a lousy way to do. When you were still in the in the consulting world or yeah. at or at Middlebury, like I mean, it was like UGC versus professionals, and like UGC won, like at the end of the day, and now professional publishers are going into areas where they don't even have to compete with UGC. Because I look at what where your business is going now, and it, it is agency-like to some degree. I, I joke it's like being like a cultural general contractor. You use the nylon brand, incredibly strong. You gather together like a bunch of influencers. You you amplify it. It's well beyond. It's not about the 1 million mm-hmm. com score uniques that nylon has or whatever. And that's a totally different, mm-hmm. that's a totally different business. Well, it's also a business where professionally created content needs to exist and and UGC, you know, users are not going to throw a, a phenomenal event and and make it good. They're not going to publish a magazine. I'll right. say this about UGC versus professional content. I was early in UGC. Bleacher Report, when I launched it in 2007, was a full effort in UGC or what I call sort of modified UGC. And we took a lot of hits and people attacked us. One of our biggest critics was this guy, Brian Morrissey, who, who never, never no missed way. an opportunity. That's not true. Never missed That's an opportunity untrue. to attack Completely us untrue. or make, or mock us, in, or mock <laughs> us in our New Yorker profiles. I think that's his brand. I mean, up, he Troy. does this here all the time. So Troy, yeah. Troy also gave a negative quote. In and, and here, his was also good. And here, here's something I will say. Around 2010, 2011, we transitioned Bleach Report from being heavy UGC to much more professional. And we did that both because we were being attacked so much, but also because we thought it was a better product and one that could attract brand advertisers. And I never regretted that decision at Bleacher Report, and I never regretted it as I applied the same model to my current companies a, a decade later. I, I don't think that brand advertising is a great fit for unvetted user-generated content, and I think it's a reason why a lot of brands are sticking with us. And I want to be in the business of supporting great brand advertisers. I don't want to be in the business yeah. of, of click of click ads and low-quality ads right. that simply aim for scale. My point about the UGC was the people who were quote-unquote doing mm-hmm. UGC became professionalized. Mm-hmm. And the expectations, mm-hmm. to Alex's point, came down in some degree. I think COVID accelerated Oh, for this. sure. I mean, once, once the newscasts were just Zoom calls and stuff, it's like, wow, anyone mm-hmm. can do video now. Yeah. And yeah. we're just used to now discounting I think people are used to discounting production quality and stuff like this because you look at the people who have like massive audiences on TikTok mm-hmm. and, this, and 
yes, they are professionals, but they are you. They have the cost base of UGC. Yeah, yeah. In a lot of cases, maybe not missile, Mr. Beast. The, the truth on the internet is, if you're going to make videos, spend zero dollars or a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Anything in in between doesn't yeah, make any sense. Right? Well, well, Disney's learning this. You guys are right. Disney is learning this right now. Their stock is is low because what the world is finding is that consumers will sit on their couch for hours watching what we would consider to be very low production quality content, and you don't necessarily need to watch a $300 million high-quality production in order to be entertained. And that's new information. What happens sometimes, I think, and this is it's, it's, it's a larger cultural shift, and I feel that there's a, a tone that's that this UGC content is somehow lesser. I, I think what that what's happened and what the pandemic accelerated was to show people what real, more truthful, more genuine content looked like, and I think they got attached to that and all these these layers of abstraction, like w- watching a weird like sports pundit talk mm-hmm. about the match, like feels so stupid now. It just feels bad, mm-hmm. and it's it's not because cheaper is better and I get more of it on TikTok. It's just I don't like watching cooking shows on the Cooking Network. I like mm-hmm. watching Maddie Matheson do his thing with a single camera setup. I, I don't disagree with that at all. And when we created Bleacher Board, it's because we agreed. Not everyone who talks about sports has to be a guy in a suit and tie paid $600,000 a year to do it. Everyday fans were pretty good. They were a pretty good product. Everyday fans riffing on sports. And we took a lot of flack for that for a decade. We were ultimately right. Bleacher Report is still successful as something of a hybrid with that model. But, there are, but, but while UGC is great for amusing you and entertaining you, it is not good for informing you or informing you in an accurate way. And, and we are... Gonna, the world is going to struggle from that. Like the, the news and the fake news on TikTok is as bad as we've ever seen. Just it doesn't get covered that much because most TikTok consumers are young and, and it's opaque to their parents. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's worth, make, it's worth noting, though, that one of the things I like about how you look at your businesses, Brian, and this t- goes all the way back to the Bleacher Report thing, is that you bring a, a distribution centric approach to your, your strategy. Mm-hmm. Right. So, it, you, know, you know what? It was fine to to start Bleacher by hijacking search and then maturing the content as you had the opportunity to do that when you were in market, you had a brand, you had some credibility, mm-hmm. you had some advertiser relationships. Like to me, that's the evolutionary path of a media brand, right? Mm-hmm. So you got to start, you got to start somewhere. You got to start with an, a, a base understanding of how you're going to mm-hmm. jack the system. And one of the things I find remarkable right now about the apps, about the apps, about UGC, about short form video and about the er, the world entertaining one another, right? It's sort of like it is the greatest time to be an enthusiast because there's just like an unending amount of content that is tailored to your interests, whether you're going on YouTube or you're going on TikTok. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things is it's so hard to hijack. Media takes the shape of its distribution position. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. And you can't lock that in anymore. And that to me is like, if you're working back from the programming guide in cable, you can create a cable network. If you're working back from the magazine stand, you can create a publication. Now, finding a way to get build a public company off of a TikTok presence is impossible. Sure. Let me ask you this. Was the, was the entire scale era like a zero interest rate phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, it was a moment in time and it was something that probably never was going to exist that people thought might exist. And when I gave you those economics on BuzzFeed that you can get 5 million people a day on your website and it really doesn't drive that much revenue organically, I don't think people were even thinking that way at the time. No one was really looking at those sorts of numbers. No, 
people thought that you could turn your search position into a more permanent relationship, that your your advertising relationships would grow, and that you could establish long-term distribution stability around a platform. Yeah, and, and that, that was the mistake. And that was the vice. That's that was that was what was well, it was the, that was the bud. That was the bu- that was the bud fees. But bud thesis. thesis, but also the site vice was telling the world and the investors handing them money that we can get fifty million people to love this brand, and this can be the, the new brand for millennial dudes. And, and the reality was, no one was actually reading it or attached to it in any way. It was it was really worth nothing. So, do you know what BuzzFeed's valuation is right now? Yeah, it's fifty-seven million. Forty-five, forty-five, thirty-two, thirty-two cents a penny stock right now. Yeah, I, th- I think. Look, I think with we can talk about BuzzFeed as much as you want, and and I really hope they would turn it around. And I was confident they could. I, I felt that Jonah was holding out on making decisions he knew he needed to make, and once he finally saw the light, he was in a very good position to be able to execute those changes. And and he just didn't. And and I think the main thing was BuzzFeed News. I mean, how many tens of millions of dollars were spent on how much time and money was spent on BuzzFeed News ultimately to no end when kind of everyone saw that it was not going to work. Yeah. You know, also to your point about the services, I just want to like add one thing to that. Yeah. And it's totally true because like I remember covering BuzzFeed during its like meteoric rise and I spent a day with Virgin Mobile, I remember Ron Farris, and they basically had BuzzFeed people embedded because they were like an agency. Mm -hmm. And I can remember one of our events, Kraft getting up, listing their agency credits and Vice was one of them. Media's always been heavy services yeah. anyway. And that's fine. And a lot of tech companies, honestly, are heavy hey, services Also, too. to be clear, I said the services business is, is a terrible business, but so is media. I come from tech. Okay, so, so there you go. <laughs> every business can be made to look like a terrible business. Well, I mean, some are worse than others. Yeah. I, I respect everybody that sticks it in media. I was there, I got out, and I just realized how much easier life was outside of it. So well, I'm, I'm still in it. I, I, still love the, I still love the game. I appreciate you. Here's what I will say about BuzzFeed again, though, when we talk about what went wrong is their pitch to to Kraft and the dog food companies and everyone under the sun was, we are the experts at driving audience. Trust us to affiliate with us because we know how to make things go viral. We know how to create the content that everyone wants to click and read. And that was a good pitch while they could still be the publication that was creating all the content people wanted to click and read. We had a very different pitch, which I think was the correct pitch, which was, hey, we're Nylon, we're Bustle, we're, we're W Magazine. This is what we create. It's a perfect fit for your brand. You want to affiliate with this elevated content. And that was always the Vogue pitch. That was always the glamour pitch was, you want to align with our brand because we got a great brand. It wasn't, hey, we figured out the gimmicks to, to reach 10 trillion people. It was, here's our brand. It's a great brand. You should affiliate with it for all the obvious reasons. Just on the BuzzFeed brand, because I think we're talking a lot about BuzzFeed, in, in a world where brands become more important, I don't think BuzzFeed stands any chance because it stands for nothing. Correct. What does that no, so I, it's, I it's gone. It's I agree. Dead. Correct. It's going to zero. Well, they right? were trying yeah. to build a, a mega brand that was everything. But they were building a mega brand around like we can hack the system to bring traffic to random shit. Yeah. I mean, that's how everybody sees it. And right? we can help advertisers so, do the same thing, which they can't do anymore. And the, the quicker we get rid, rid of these and, and the more healthy the environment will be. Yeah. So that's all. So if the future is dictated by having these strong brands, why are you better? Why is Bustle better mm-hmm. positioned than a Conde Nast? I mean, no offense to Nylon, mm-hmm. but Vogue is a better brand. Like, I mean, why do you, why do you guys mm-hmm. give me give, give me give me ten years on that? I don't know that that will be the case in ten years, and certainly not for W, which is already. Well, I don't know, but doing I know now. Things. I can only know now. That's fair enough. Give, I, give me I mean, time. I, I you know the pandemic okay. stopped me from being able to run that property up, for, for a couple of years. 
Uh, we bought that right before the pandemic. It was the worst timing ever, but we've, we've had a couple of years to get it to do what we needed to do, and it's working. So us versus Meredith or Conley Nass or Hearst. I, I said this to Troy because he, he was president of one of those companies, and I'll say the same thing to Neil or anyone else. One benefit we have is we don't have the history of scale. We, we were never a billion or two billion revenue company. So a thing that moves the needle for us might be a thing that's a quote-unquote distraction to Meredith or to Condé Nast. So a perfect example is when we push nylon into print, I hope that one day becomes a 10, then $20 million business. I'm not expecting it to be a $100 million business. Even $20 million as it would probably be a stretch. But guess what? I'd love to make another $10 million or $15 million because at my current scale, that moves the needle for me. It does not move the needle for those guys. And, and sometimes scale or the history of scale can be a burden. And I think that for Time and Meredith and Condé and Hearst, part of the process was being able to say this business will not be as big as it was in the past, but it can still be a good business if we make certain changes now. And that's a very hard thing to look in the mirror and tell yourself. And, and it's just something they've never really reconciled. It's been yeah. kind of a rolling thesis of this podcast that scaled media doesn't work and things need to be small and opinionated and mm -hmm. nimble to survive. Yeah, and I and I just I have to go. You, you can't ever you can't ever envision the future of media without understanding the distribution side. Publishers and media broadly have lost control of distribution. Now distribution has to be paid for a la carte. It makes it much much harder to have a predictable business model without it. The algorithm controls distribution. Brian, the only way for you guys to build your business now is to say, we're going to make things and pay to have attention pointed to it, or we are going to create something that can't be taken away by the algorithm, which is an event. That's it. I knew you would say that, Troy. And so I, I ask you this question. You did not. I reject the premise. <laughs> Who is the number one buyer of traffic in the world? Who spends the most on, quote unquote, buying traffic of any company on earth? Expedia? No, that would, that, that, that would like be that. Google. Because Google buys a whole lot of their traffic from a company called yeah. Apple. And, and if you, yeah, and if you sure. think I'm spending a lot of money because I'm spending whatever $10 million a year buying traffic, Google is spending billions and billions and billions and billions I, I, of dollars. Again, you're being unnecessarily antagonistic. I like it. It wasn't That's a knock on- That's what this podcast on, needs is more yeah. antagonistic. Well, no, but I'm, yeah. everyone is buying traffic, Troy. Everyone's paying for it. Everyone is paying for it. Including Google. Dude, what are you? Hey, hey, Brian, slow your roll, dude. It's totally. I'm not criticizing a media company no, that buys traffic. He's forward. He's only getting started. Here, here's why your business is doomed, Brian. Here's why your business is doomed. I'm not being antagonistic, <laughs> good, Brian. It's a good impersonation. I, I really, I really I, thought. First, I don't. I don't think. I don't think I that this. started by saying, "Here's why your business is doomed." We got to put this part behind the paywall. Yeah. <laughs> Here's why. Listen, the difficulty in magazine media, in newspapers is now rolling over television and it's all about fundamental kind of dis dismantling distribution systems. And so you're responding to that admirably is the point, jerk. And that's what I'm saying to you. I'm saying you have to do this. Yeah, and, and sometimes it's better to pay for it because at least you know it's real, and at least you know it's recurring, and at least you know where you stand. If you're trying to get all your traffic, quote unquote, organically, you never know what's going to happen. And if your business model is predicated with good margins and good uni unit economics, and you're still paying for traffic, that's fine. And that's what Google does. No, it'll, it, it, it's fine. You're, you're going to have a good little 15% business. It'll be fine. Well, compared to every other venture-backed company in the world right now, I would gladly take 15% net margins. Go, go, go see what the, you want to talk about AI? Go see what their margins are. Go see what the margins are for a lot of SaaS companies, some of which are publicly traded. Go, go look at the market. But that's what I was. Yeah, go look at their that's margins. That's what I was getting at about, yeah. about whether the scale era, and I mean the VC funded digital media era, was just a zero interest rate phenomenon. In that none of these companies 
and possibly including Bustle, are going to reach what they were supposed to reach. And that's just the reality, right? I mean, you, you raised a lot of money in a different era. I would not look. The, the VCs are doing fine, so so please don't. I'm not please don't cry the for the VCs. Um, hey, look, there are no victims here, no. as far as I can tell. My, You're in Miami. Yeah. The VCs are fine. My, my VCs are first of all, they're very happy they bet on me and not any of the other dozen that went to zero. So that's the first thing. Are, are they anticipating 100 times their money back or even 20 times their money back? No. Are they pretty confident they're going to get a return of some kind when the, when the window comes? Yes, they should be. And, and I'm committed to delivering that. So I think if I can get these guys, depending on which investor it is, double or triple their money back, or in some cases, you know, worst case, their money back, that's a lot better than what happened to BuzzFeed or Vice or Refinery or any of the others. So I think they are doing just fine. But no, they're not going to get 100 times their money back. And they will get 100 times their money back on very, very few investments, maybe at most one per portfolio. Okay. But you're not going to raise more money? Because, I mean, look, stuff is cheap. I mean, BuzzFeed might be available soon. Like, no, we, like we, we probably will raise more money at some point. But but right now, what I'm trying to prove is we can be a very profitable company with the 10 publications we do have. And if we can't do it with 10 publications, I don't want to be the guy saying, I need 15 to get profitable. We had a very small profit last year. It should have been a much bigger profit. And I am guilty as CEO of the company for letting the cost structure be such that our profit was a few million bucks instead of tens of millions of dollars. This year is an advertising recession and we're going to fight to be profitable, we'll see if we do it. But when things turn around, we'll be in a good position. But I, my priority right now is showing that with 10 publications, we can be a highly profitable company. That is more important to me than getting our 15th publication, though it, though it might happen. Just out of, hey, out of curiosity, yeah. which of your pubs is the most profitable? It's, you can't look at it that way. Uh, people, uh-huh. VCs and investors and bankers, everyone tries to ask that question. It's a bundle. We sell a bundle. Every deal we sell has at least two or three titles in it. Which one do you like the, do you like the best? It's nylon. It's nylon. Yeah, we need to know your favorite. Yeah, I love them all for different reasons. Look, <laughs> Bustle and Romper ones we built ourselves. I'm inc- incredibly proud of Bustle. I know you, you guys are attacking it because it's a little bit more mass market than niche. But Troy, you said it yourself. You One of the few nice things, you, actually you do say nice things about me, but one of the nicest things you said about me a few years ago is, Brian, Brian, you've managed to turn Bustle into a thing. And <laughs> you've actually managed to build a brand here, Brian. That's as good as it gets, Troy. Oh. That's all any and of us hope melt. for. I was like, you mean that, Troy? You're- Brian, you 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 prove me wrong. You've managed to turn Bustle into a thing here. And, and by the way, Bustle warm your heart. Th- the sign to me that you matter is when you can get the Jonas Brothers or other top tier A list celebrities to appear on your covers. I, I don't think they do that with third. You know what? You actually look shockingly like a Jonas Brother. Are you a Jonas Brother? Th- that might now we now that might be the nicest thing you've ever said to me. You, 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 <laughs> complimenting Bustle was. I, I'm I'm proud of them all. Yeah. Since we're since we're complimenting it, uh, you know, part of the uh, we've been doing fifty three episodes of this thing, and and uh, a big part of me is me complaining just how shitty the online media. I just went on a on a Variety article the other day, and I couldn't read it because of pop up videos and ads. I don't see any Taboola links on your on Bustle. How do you make money? We are trying to do that. I I'm still not sure that crowding your site with programmatic ads ever makes you money. I think it might cost you money. And I like to keep it clean. So we're actually probably going to strip more stuff off our sites because I think it might actually make our revenue and programmatic revenue go up if people are you know, blinded by, by all the, the crud on the websites. That, that could be what works. We don't know. I mean, the only way to know is to try, right? I like you more and more every minute. It's, it's a good segue into AI because one of my hypotheses is that crowding these websites with shitty content is just going to push people into digesting all content through some sort of AI filter more and more. We're moving to an age where 
there's an interface shift. It's not, not a new device. It's not a new model. It's a full-on interface shift. And people are going to consume content, specifically written content, very differently. Mm-hmm. And I, I expect that within the next year, most browsers will have some sort of easy way to digest content and skip mm-hmm. everything you're doing. How do you, you know, you're, you're talking about going through this downturn now, but by the time you pick your head back out, there's a new harvester coming to mow down the mm-hmm. next. Yeah, things change fast. Yeah. So what, how, how are you bracing yourself for that? But, but I like shockwave. Yeah. What are you, you going to do about, about the, the AI yeah. harvester? So, so look, I, I like hard things. I, I like tough ecosystems. I like choppy waves, whatever, whatever you want to use there. The reason I'm still standing is because I think I out-executed everyone and I dealt with challenge better than my competitors. So keep the challenges coming because I think that I'll continue to overcome them. How do we overcome AI? Well, first we have to say to ourselves, what is AI really going to do here? What AI is going to do is it's going to take the cost of content production down from very, very, very low to extremely low. But does that change very much for someone like us? Because I don't think our consumers, the people reading our publications, going to our events, opening our magazines, the celebrities posing for our covers, I don't think they're thinking about AI that much or cheap content that much. And we are now entering an era where people are going to have to think every day about this question of what is real versus what is fake. And if something looks real, but it's not real, is it real? And we, in the prior generation, we really had to think about that in the context of, do I buy the fake Rolex or the fake Chanel handbag on, on Houston Street? You know, will anyone know that my, my Rolex is fake? Will anyone know that my girlfriend's bag is $50 instead of $3,000? Or does anyone care that my rug is handmade versus machine-made? Do people care? And that same mental framework is now been applied to a lot of other things. And I think when it comes to content, and especially visual content and, and, and quality written content, I think people do care. And I don't think that when people design a flyer for a concert or when someone creates album art or when somebody hangs a painting in their room, I think they do care if it was human created, even in a world where you can hit a button and make I, it fit. I agree, I agree. I'm not really talking about, I think, there's content creation, mm-hmm. right? AI content creation, that's sure. what everybody's talking about. Generative AI, the yeah. Biggest sh- yeah, generative AI. But the biggest shift, I think, is going to be in the content consumption. That's the stuff that's going to really impact your business model because all media is in the business model of monetizing at least some part of the friction within the UI, right? Like you put an ad here, you put an interruption there, you promote something, you add a, a link to an Amazon product page, whatever that is. What AI allows readers to do is shift the way they're consuming content. So you no longer have control mm-hmm. over how your stuff looks. Your content's all there, but I don't want to see ads anymore or I want the thing to be shorter. You know, famously, I want all my stuff to be shortened and read by mm-hmm. Snoop Dogs. That that's that's how I read my news now. I mm-hmm. summarize it and I have Is a that, Snoop Dogg AI reading, reading it. Yeah, it's fantastic. That might just be you, but Oh, it definitely is. I've not been I've not been bullish on 300 by 250 ads served on web pages <laughs> for a long time here. So, and and when people we're crying about ad blockers. Remember, how, how many times at Digiday in 2018 yeah. did you write about ad blockers? As if we were, we were all doomed. You got to have main characters, okay? <laughs> and the ad blocking and is a good That was a character. big main character. You got to have villains. You got to have, like, and I remember like you, in pro wrestling, you have villains. Reading that and thinking, is this really important? Is it, if ad blocking is your biggest opponent, then you're, you're really screwed. And if AI is my biggest opponent, I'm really screwed. Thankfully, like then, today, I'm not worried about AI hurting my business because, again, I'm not in the scale game. I'm not in the business of publishing a thousand stories a day the way others tried to five years ago. If it's a race to the bottom, I'm, I'm going to lose. I don't want to be in a race to the bottom. I'm, I'm, I'm 40 years old now. I'm, I'm too old to keep chasing my tail and, and trying to win these, win these races. I want to 
carve out my space. And in the world I'm building of high quality photography, smart writing, events that celebrities genuinely want to attend, in that world, AI is not going to really impact us in any any negative way. I, I struggle to see how that's going to change anyone's interest in getting into a party. So services business to the rescue. On that, though, yeah. you said the other day that there was no way that Morrissey was getting into the Art Basel party. No. I mean, I, I mean, if I walk him in, maybe. Let's deal with that later. No, no. <laughs> no but, oh, but, you meant like I wouldn't you like, know, oh, but, I, I, thought, I totally miss. My wife is a client. I'm getting in. Don't worry. That might get him in. Brian's in the I, services I, business. I My that. wife is a client. Was like, was like, I don't know. Yeah, now you're changing your tune. I just want to say this, whatever I want. There's no plus ones. No plus Brian's ones. Brian's going to be in Miami. Yeah. CMO coming through. I'll get in. Don't worry. We'll see. We'll see. There's no plus ones at my party, so you have to be individually invited. <laughs> I, Which is to say, before you, before we, we wrap this, hold on, yeah. Brian Goldberg. Yes. What makes a party great? What makes your party so great? Yeah, there's there's so many answers, but I'll keep it simple. It's the perfect mix of people at the party. There are many things that make a party a party, from the venue. Would would Brian could Brian you possibly be part of that mix? You need more B two B podcasters. Brian, it would help if you if you donned a Burning Man look. Like if you could just go okay. on one of the Burning Man clothing websites and at least go for the burger vibe, and and people are like I think I saw okay. that I think I saw that guy at at Mirage Garage. I think I saw that guy at. at Playground or Mayan warrior? No, 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 Brian. He's got a great look. It's European baby. Okay. It's amazing. <laughs> Even if I'm hot off a webinar, I'll, I'll do Don't it. Don't just at least look interesting when you come to parties. So people are wondering who is that guy. I, I feel like I saw that guy on TV. What, what's what's uh, I saw him at Burning Man. I, I swear it, it's the perfect mix. Studio Fifty Four said it right. It's like you'll see celebrities and they'll be dancing next to complete random strangers no one's ever heard of. But the celebrities are famous and the guy dancing for nine hours on the dance floor is interesting and bringing a vibe. It's getting that perfect mix of people. And yes, there'll be some clients in there. I always cap the clients at 10%. So if there's going to be a 2000 person party, I say up to 200 can be business people. The other 100, 1800 have to be actual guests. And then they all fight to see who, which clients they're getting in. There's a certain amount of influencers, but influencers aren't always fun at a party. Sometimes they're just sitting there taking videos. And so you need, that's where you need the Burning Man camps, or you need the the girls who are going to dance for six hours straight in funny costumes. You just need a good mix of people. And and that's what makes everyone want to get in. And if you go to our parties, you'll see the line to get in is Studio 54. There was almost like, when we have these parties, it's usually like mobs and we have to get extra security because people want to go to them and film them and show their friends they got in. And that's good for us and that's good for the brands. Could you? Would you walk me and Brian after this podcast? Yes. Or are we still? Because you're my real, you're my you're my actual friend. Because you said something. You've said two nice things about me over the last five years. Two nice said many at, nice at this things pace, we could be a, for a decade. Four compliments a decade. You know, we have this thread going between the three of us, and I was saying all kinds of nice things about you, and these guys were like, "What's wrong with you?" <laughs> well, I mean, to you? be clear, I didn't know who you were, so Fair I, enough. you know, but now now I do. I. <laughs> All right, so fi- wait, wait, one final question. There's a there's a bunch of new. I mean, you were part of a couple of waves of to me like digital <laughs> media companies. The early wave with HuffPost mm-hmm. and and Bleacher, and then I, I would put you in the other yeah. wave with BuzzFeed, Vice, Fox, etc. The new wave that is like coming, and it's like a smaller wave, and they're smaller to me. They're smaller ideas at the end of the day. I think about Semaphore, <laughs> Puck, Punchbowl. Add any of them. Which of them do you think, or if any of them? are interesting and promising? Look, I guess we'll have to see. I'm very skeptical that now is the best time to launch a media brand, a a media brand in the old sense. I think now is a time to pick which historical media brands are worth saving and to try really hard to save the ones that are worth saving. Again, 
good luck to them. And, and I, I do think some of them will find a place and, and survive and maybe thrive. But you, you just avoided the question. Yeah. Do you, you basically avoided the question and then talked your book. So wh- what is the I answer? I did not do that. Brian, you have a... You said, I'm going to buy old media brands and yeah. resuscitate them. So what is, what do you think of Puck? I mean, look, I, th- I think it's, you know, when I, when I look at Vanity Fair, what do I think is still matters with Vanity Fair? And I think a lot of it is the Oscars party, which is still an incredible product and a, a hugely consequential brand. I still think the photography is, is important. Do I think the long form storytelling in Vanity Fair is what is making it succeed? Do I think that when they write an 8,000 word piece on some trend, or, or they profile an interesting person. Do I think a lot of people are reading it and they're making money on that? Probably not. So if that is what Puck is doing, is telling interesting stories and sending them to people, I hope there's a business there because I truly believe in long-form writing as, as, as something the world needs. I just don't know it's a good business. And I, I haven't really thought necessarily it's a great business for quite some time. So, so I, if that's the core of their business, I don't know that that's going to work. That's a good answer. Thank you. All right. This is yeah. great. This Let's great. do it again at the Nylon House, Art Basel. We could either do it before the party or like after the party wraps up. We'll try, we'll try our best. It's a very busy <laughs> work for me, Art Basel. You could have tried to qualify this with your PR people or drag someone on here to listen in and take notes. You probably have someone in the room behind you. I don't. Yeah. I, I switched rooms when the, when, the, when the vacuum cleaner went on. I honestly really appreciate it. I think this was an amazing conversation. Brian, I think the format's fine. I think it works. Great. All right. I really love this. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Give me a couple of years. We'll do it again. Yeah. And as a former <laughs> web designer, I'm rooting for you guys to succeed because your sites do look pretty, pretty good and make the web a worthwhile place to visit. So well, thank you. We appreciate you that. Know. I agree with that. Take yeah. care, guys. Good Till next product. time. It's fun. All right. See you. Thanks, Bye. Brian. All right. That was fun. How do you want to wrap this now? All right. That was great. Yeah. Well, Troy, what was your, what were your three takeaways, Troy? Well, the first concern I had is that you were worried that the format, and rightly, that the sort of three people interviewing one person was not a good format. And I think it went okay. So No, I'm it went okay when that. it moved into like a conversation. Like It was good. I think Brian is unique. It's going to require having, obviously, the right person that's like familiar, I think, yeah. with the, the show and is willing and game for integrating within it. But yeah, the nice. se- the, my second observation, you, you characterized it well, where Brian was sort of like first stage, second stage, third stage. Right. So the first was the Fast and Furious content search optimized, but the Bleacher Report era. The second was multi-brand, still very distribution focused. And the third era is what Brian's on now, which is packaging, scarcity, activations, really an old magazine model, returning to a kind of old magazine model. Well, I think that's the, the is it ironic? I don't know. But I thought what was interesting was the I mean, the entire Bustle model was sort of a reaction to like the magazine model, and now Bustle finds itself in the magazine model. Mm-hmm. You know, we all grow up to become our parents. That's my big takeaway. Yeah. What else stuck out to me? You know, I thought that what Brian said is the thing that we maybe don't want to talk about too much, which is that you know, you said they want to taste. I'm talking about Google and affiliate revenue. They get a taste because many of the people that optimize for affiliate revenue buy media from Google to do so. Yeah, that's true. So they're, they're getting it that way, and they can easily relegate organic results and force you essentially to buy your position in the SERP. Yeah. And, and so they, they get a taste that way. But, yeah. you know, his, his kind of warning that this kind of, I guess, an obvious one, that the game of optimizing content for, for affiliate is one that a lot of people can play. And it leaves media companies vulnerable to the same forces that they were 
vulnerable to in the last generation. And that's a tough place to be if you're running a scaled public company. Well, this so, is the I, the part we didn't get to, which is I always use the metaphor of like a children's soccer game for digital media and that the when the ball's in one part of the, the field, the, the clump of kids follows. And anytime the ball goes, if it was in distributed, everyone, the clump follows. If it's an affiliate, everyone follows. Everyone's following to the events and live activations, however you want to call it. Like it's incredibly crowded. I mean, I just see in the B2B, like it's which has always been heavy events. Someone termed it event season to me because it was like, I have like 15 events. And I'm like, where are people doing their jobs? I mean, I'm doing like these dinners. All roads lead into this services slash activations. And it's going to get super, everything gets competitive, like Brian said. And that's going to get even more competitive than it was. Yeah. I mean, I would, I didn't do this. Brian loves a fight. And I think this notion that Alex chafes against, which is you become too much of a service company, is a real thing. And where you start to make really healthy profits in media is when you have a product that you monetize over and over again that doesn't come with marginal expense. Meaning more people read your stuff and you have some type of distribution stability. And that's why the number one magazine in a category would roughly have the same expense structure as the number two or three magazine, except w make way more money because its ad rates were higher, its distribution was larger, et cetera, et cetera. And so service revenue scales linearly with cost. Yeah. And that's the tough part. So that what happens is Brian's going to have a great little, not a great, like not a little business, he'll have a couple hundred million dollar business, but it'll be, it'll be difficult for him to find really healthy margins. So it'll be a 15% business. Well, I mean, it's not there yet, but if it got there, that, that that it'll be hard to get above that. Yeah, I mean, that's the agency trap, right? Yeah. Those are the margins agencies. I mean, I think on. the margins are less of a concern for me. The, the issue that I have, if you can build margins of 15%, 20% on a sustainable business, it's great. The problem with the agency model is usually that none of the work that you're doing is additive to the brand. Usually, does it make sense? So you'll do a little event for a company. Yeah, and yeah but I think that's additive. different in this case. But if you can do stuff so like... you're saying it's usually harvesting the brand equity. Yeah. Like I used to call it going to the brand ATM. Yeah, and, so, and you're cashing out rather than cashing into it. Right, just simply when you're in services business, you're not making stuff for yourself, you're making it for someone else. I think that there will always be people who want to be in media, even though it's actually not a great business compared to other businesses. And if there's a healthy way to make 10 to 20% on that and has a sustainable business that, that makes $100, $200 million, great. If we have 100 of those companies, great. Maybe that's our, the future we should be all rooting for, right? I'm rooting yeah, for it's him. It's worth I'm noting, one, one of the questions that came up between us recently was, can media brands or platform brands be resuscitated? And I think it's a fun thing to think about why or why not. And in the case of a nylon or a W, you know, W was sold off from, I believe it was sold off from Condé because it wasn't a viable media brand for them as a print publication primarily. And they never really got the, they never really got energy and on the digital side such that it, it just was kind of neglected and didn't make any money. Nylon, I think that nylon, a couple people have taken runs at making nylon work too. And Brian managed to, to take a brand or an idea and make it kind of relevant. So, so, so yeah, those brands are recyclable. I think that's really different than when your primary distribution model has left you. Say like 
when people shifted from to Facebook from MySpace or when young people stopped using Yahoo. And those are very different kind of problems because they're rooted fundamentally in how you distribute your product. But there's one other little thing that's important. I think there's people that recognize nylon and think it's kind of cool and I'll go to a nylon event and whoa. I don't know that there's people that have super deep relationship with that brand. I think it's pretty superficial. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of the, to me, it's like the cultural equivalent of the kind of brand you built for SEO. And that like Neil was able to build quote unquote brands before pre-Meredith acquisition for, for an SEO, meaning like the brands that they were building, it just like they were plausible in an SEO These are not context. Gener- yeah, right. I think it's a good analogy. They're not generational media brands. They bring a little bit of trust and recognition, yeah. but they are not, they're not wayfinders. So hypothetically, right, if, if we were going to, somebody's putting some of these brands up for auction, which ones do we think we could, that could be made successful? Because my hypothesis is that the brand needs to be just known enough, but with a little baggage, as little baggage as possible. Because if it has too much going for it, for, for example, Vice, is Vice a brand that you can resuscitate? MTV. Is MTV a brand that you can resuscitate? Gawker didn't work because I think Gawker, when everybody thought of Gawker, they yeah. thought of fucking Hulk Hogan getting a blowjob. So, I mean, that was gone. I think in, oh, whoa. <laughs> I think MT, MTV, like it, it depends on, the, I don't know if you saw this, Playboy, uh, Playboy Vodka came out and Playboy has has moved into one of these authentic brands group kind mm-hmm. of situations yeah. where they're they're going to harvest the brand across all kinds of things. It's going to be Been going on, on forever. A, really. a Baccarat room probably in Macau and stuff like this. And you can do lots of those kind of things with like an MTV. You can imagine MTV cafes. A Baccarat in, room in Macau. Yeah. You pulled that one out. That's good. That's <laughs> I was great. actually just talking about a Baccarat. Right, but that's like having that's like going to Costco and having some sort of brand that was hot in the '90s, like slapped onto some jeans yeah. that are made for two dollars and no pl- Playboy peanuts. Yeah, I mean yeah. Playboy is a great brand. It's just that it's, it's it? not a brand for like a media. No, I'm talking media. I, I mean, yeah, sure. Brand. You know, what about v- Vice hot sauce? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. You don't want that. What about vice vice ribeye? I don't even know what vice stands yeah. for anymore. And I think when the, dra- when the drama Grass. when the drama around the brand becomes like bigger than the brand, then that's gone. So, so I think it, the the skill is about finding brands that have there are still enough of a blank slate. I think one of the interesting things that Brian said was that it's the legacy brands that end up having more value by far to harvest than digital brands. I mean, he is an expert at building digital brands, and he's talking about. Legacy brands, not like when I asked about the new, he was dodging the question. Thank you for pointing that out, Troy. Is when I asked about the new brands, he went to old brands because clearly their playbook is about how do you find brands that that can you can run that kind of playbook that they're running with nylon and they're most they're legacy brands. They're well, not Elite Daily. They're not Didn't Mike. Brian have a quote about Elite Daily overtaking Wall Street Journal? Yeah, I didn't bring that up. I thought that would be unfair. Yeah. You know, Apple also it said a bunch of shit that they kind of ignore the next year. This is like all part of doing business. Hey, how about yeah. I would love to just run through and ask each of you guys if there was one brand, one kind of classical premium brand that you could pick and do something with, which one would it be? And then we can go to good product. Oh my god. So Brian, like I'm gifting you a brand. I'm not prepared for this. No, <laughs> Troy has to go okay, first. Okay, Troy should know. Yeah. 
you're gifting me a brand in any category. Uh, uh, no, uh, uh, I gift you a media brand that that you have to resuscitate. Which one would you pick? Actually, I'll go first. I think I have one, and this this will kind of go with Troy because he was involved in it. Runner's World. Like I always thought that was a mismanaged brand, and I don't know what went on with the Rodale acquisition. And I think running itself, because I'm I'm really into it. I think that that brand was always could have been far bigger and better than it it was. Certainly when it was part of Rodale. I don't know what it's going on with it now, and it's an area that I like. So I would love to do that. Good one. Yeah. Good one. This is a good one. You know, I I can tell you a lot about it. It was a much bigger more viable brand than bicycling because it's a bigger community and because the primary advertiser shoemakers are a decent ad market. And so their print product did reasonably well. It was a little tricky to move it over to the web, but it's 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 an okay business, small business. But well, I, I think the bicycling. problem with them is that they went too broad. They became like another, like they just became more about fitness than running. And it became interchangeable. And so I would take the brand and I would make it all about running. All of it. Yeah, I, I want I would take a brand that I mean, there's a bunch of media brands, you know, pick one in fashion or lifestyle or category probably would be fun to own. I'd rather own a c- commerce brand. Like I'd love to own the brand OP, Ocean Pacific. Oh yeah. Part of it is a a strong connection I have to my youth and my father who wore corduroy OP shorts constantly and I love those and I and I think that five inch inseam thighs. short shorts who wears short shorts but yeah I would find a, a a brand that had an iconic product that you could bring back and you would do that with both you would do it with content and and product so that's where I would go yeah my wife is doing this with a spray Spree's a good one. They're bringing it back, back yeah, to. They're Spree's just relaunching one. it in the U.S. market, and it's been going for a long time. And B- Benetton's a good one. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. As far as good product, I mentioned this early in the podcast. I was listening to the Powers That Be, the media podcast. They have a podcast called Media Mondays. It's a puck podcast with. Uh, You're John. all into puck now. We got to get them to sponsor this. With John Kelly and uh, who's the other Dylan Byers? Is that who does it? Yeah. Well, no, Peter Hamby, I think. Peter Hamby does it. That's right. That's right. They were doing some media history stuff this week, and I thought this is a great conversation between two people that are really knowledgeable, and I enjoyed it immensely. I love media history. I I think sometimes when, particularly like journalists, I think are generally, I mean, I studied history. Like when I go back to the scale era, I feel like a lot of like entrepreneur, operator types are always like, oh, you're just trying to like, I look forward to stuff. And I get that. But I always think that, first of all, it's just interesting to me, but also I end up thinking like you end up picking up cues from what happened before to what will happen in the future. Yeah, it's not like it's... So that's my interest. One, in one of the history. things that started the look back on that podcast was the recent decision at the New York Times to kill the sports section and just focus on the athletic as their sports coverage mm-hmm. and how media people are deeply nostalgic even if the New York Times sports section was really about sort of cultural features and had, as to real sports fans, had kind of faded into obscurity and they needed something very, very different to capitalize on the fandom that is sports and that they made a bet that they could do that through the athletic, a very expensive bet. And I thought the guys contextualized the the problem and the solution extremely well. So that would be my pick this week. I, I think the New York Times is ruining the athletic. 
I think they're driving that into the ground and they're they're killing that product. That's my hot take. Yeah, I don't read it, so I don't know. But so what they the athletic was basically founded as they're going to poach the one or two best local people, right. depending on the, the the market size and everything like this. We're going to get the best person and we're going to cover the local team and then they're going to come for the other stuff. And it, this model didn't really work. It was too expensive, right? So the Times bought it. And so what did they do? They got rid of all the, of the local people, right? And now it's all basically like a giant sports publication. But the entire premise that like why I signed up was because the best Eagles beat writers, they hired the best Eagles beat writer. They don't even have. If you have a publication that does not have a Philadelphia Eagles dedicated writer, I don't know what you're doing. It's a different product. And so they're trying to morph the product that I'm going to, I bet they're going to go into either a churn spiral or it's just going to become another appendage because they just wanted to do a different job within that bundle. And I think the product itself has really suffered under the New York Times. Mm. And I know what everyone like it has to like worship at the feet of the New York Times, but not in this case, not for me. Meanwhile, that game that they have on there is a very big part of my family currently. The game is called, have you played it? It's called Connections? No, I don't play any of their games. No, it's very popular at the words. moment. It's the new Wordle. Everybody's talking it's about like it. That. Yeah, yeah, it's really doing yeah. well. That kind of stuff is so sticky. It seems trivial, but it's huge to their Well, they've success. been really good at picking the things that fit the brand, right? Other media sites have tried to put like a Slash Games tab back in the day when Flash was a thing and just drop a bunch of cheap Flash games in there. But what New York Times has managed to do is kind of carry over that kind of New York Times puzzles section and digitize it in a way that was really interesting. That yeah. world acquisition was really smart. I mean, they spent a little bit of money on it and it was a huge hit for them. Well, good podcast, guys. I think now and then it's fun to have a guest. I know there's another one in the wings. Yep. I think we should do it. For sure. All right. Thank you. All right. Remember to like and subscribe and share and keep helping us make this thing a thing. We love you all. Cool. Thank you. It's fun doing that with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.